When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan from The Square Ball. Alongside me, Michael Normanson. Hello. And from a remote location under a bunker somewhere, we have Phil Hay. Hello. Where are you, Phil? Tell us. It's an adventurous that, but I'm in the Premier Inn in Garston in Watford. Wow. She's a lucky Excited. woman. Yeah, Santa Page just round the corner. It's a bit so special it's, uh, occasion, is it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Harry Potter World beckons tomorrow. Booked it about five times, but this time it looks like we're actually going to go and we'll get my wallet emptied in the shop, no doubt. But yes, looking forward to it immensely. And presumably you're still working while you're there, Phil. No rest for the wicked, etc. Yeah, Arsenal last night, day off tomorrow. But yeah, usual, usual routine for me. Gearing up for Norwich on Sunday, which promises to be a belter. And you must reward this man's hard work by subscribing to The Athletic. If you don't yet, you can get 33% off the price of a sub at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Uh, Phil, what's happening this week then? A uh, bit on Joffy we've got coming up in this pod and this week. We do have a big read on Gilhart, just a bit more about his background and his development. And I think what we can expect of him, particularly after that, that appearance on Saturday against Wolves. There's obviously reflections on the Arsenal game as well, talking and, and writing a lot, a lot about some of what we will talk about shortly. There's Away from what I've been doing, there's a really, really good piece um, by Stuart James who went over to Iceland to find out about the, the allegations of, of sexual assault that have been going around their, their national team um, and have had big implications over there. Obviously, they were, they were hugely popular for a time um, around about the, the Euros in 2016, but there have been some big problems there. And it, it's a difficult read, but it's a very, very good piece. Let's jump off then with reflections on Arsenal from last night. You were inside the stadium. How was it from your perspective? It was good at half time, and then it was it was gone. It, it felt like that to me. I thought the team that he picked made sense, and I was pleased to see Drame get a go at right back because that's been coming, and and he's been one of those in the academy that's that's been touted for a debut. But I think he's been as far forward as just about anybody, maybe with the exception of Creswell and, and Gelhart and, and possibly Somerville as well. But he really has been in that top tier um, of, of the group in between the 23s and the first team squad. And it was strong enough on the night, I felt, to do something. And although Arsenal had a good start, it was quite a slow burn from Leeds to begin with. It felt to me like the game had turned midway through the first half. And, and I felt that by the end of the first half, it was working for Leeds. It, it was it was coming together. They were starting to look more dangerous. They were counter-attacking Arsenal pretty well without finding the final ball. And I did feel like the, the initial fizz in Arsenal's game had, had gone out of it. Nketiah uh, wasn't seeing much of the ball up front and, and they were struggling to to put decent pass- passages of play together. And I found the first sub very difficult to understand. Click for, for Adam Forshaw. I didn't think that Forshaw was having a blinding game. I didn't think he was having a particularly bad game either. There were points where Arsenal were, were able to turn him. But it did feel as if the shape was working for Leeds. It did feel as if at that stage they, they were in the ascendancy. And while, you know, Gilhard for Tyler Roberts definitely made sense. And and I do, you know, with hindsight, understand trying to protect Urenti, even though Urenti, I thought, was one of the best passes of the ball on the pitch and actually 
probably the Leeds' best player in the first half. I understand protecting his fitness, but I did feel that that first substitution took the wind out of Leeds' sails. And it's not the first time we've said that about Bielsa with a, with a cup game. He has a poor record in the Cups. And this is a, another occasion, really, where it, it felt like the tie was there to be won. And then, as I say, suddenly it was gone. Do you think we learned anything from this Cup tie besides it reinforcing the uh, the status in the Cups as, as something we're not re- really interested in or something we're not particularly good in? Well, that's probably the thing that it tells you is, is that at this stage, it, it still isn't a priority. It hasn't ever felt like a priority and it definitely isn't at Ellen Road. They've never put pressure on Bielsa to do anything specific in the Cups. They've never set targets for him within those competitions. The, the brief for him has always been win promotion, get us up, keep us up, um, which, you know, up until this point, he, he's done exactly that. So, you know, there's income to be had from the Cups. I, I don't think the club seriously think that, that they're in with a, you know, a massively strong chance of winning them. I think there's a, an opportunity to go a, a reasonable distance. And I think Arsenal probably will now, which was the, the disappointing aspect of, of yesterday. But you did get to the end of it and feel that if there's going to be a win this week, it really needs to come at Norwich on Sunday. And and it felt last night that there was frustration about the way the way it just kind of petered out against Arsenal. But very, very quickly, you could feel people turning their thoughts to, to Norwich at the weekend. And, and as I say, if, if protecting people like Yorenti helps with a game like that, it's probably the right decision. I, 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 I guess it's fair to say that because of where Leeds are in the table, because of the state of the Premier League at the moment, the cup competitions have probably never mattered less. I don't think. Even in the seasons where they were going for promotion, they tended to hit the cup competitions with a bit of form. You know, things, the picture tended to be pretty good roundabout, but they're not in form at the moment. They they don't have results and the priority is 100% to get some momentum going in the Premier League. Do you share the opinion voiced by some that this has harmed the momentum built up at the end of the Wolves game? Because that felt like a big turning point, that that late equaliser. I was thinking about this before I came on air. Exactly that. And and thinking to myself, I wonder whether it would have been a help not to have had the Arsenal game in between because he would have taken the impetus from Wolves, which definitely was at, at full time, into straight into the Norwich game, which which is now a huge, huge fixture. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that in greater detail later on, but it's a must-win game in the sense that if you don't win it, you're going to be facing a lot of questions afterwards you know you're going to have a lot to answer and and a lot to explain and you'll be 10 games in with a pretty paltry number of points on the board the Wolves game was one of those odd matches where when I was writing about it afterwards I said I don't think that performance was anywhere near perfection and I don't think it was anywhere near vintage Bielsa and I've never ever seen Ellen Road celebrate you know, a one-all draw against Wolves or, or a club like that in October with so much euphoria and so much passion but it was a big moment and it felt like a big moment. And it was a big moment because regardless of what came out of the game, of you know, the game ultimately, they had to get something from it. There was so much invested by the crowd and the players in the back end of that match. He also said, you know, we, we desired it ferociously. And I think that was absolutely spot on. I think that's how, how it felt. And something had to come from it. And an equaliser like that was enough. It was enough for people to feel as if they were still in there. Everybody was hanging in. Everybody was fighting for it. And, and you're right. It did again feel a little bit flat coming away from Arsenal because there were obvious issues to to pick out from the performance and, and it might have helped going to Norwich on Sunday not to have had that in the middle. But that was the fixture list, that was the, the schedule. And I think when you reflect on yesterday's game um, and, and the chance to get to the quarterfinals, it was definitely there at half-time. It really was. As someone who's more neutral than, than the two of us, what did you make of Wolves? I found their performance really weird because... 
I honestly thought there were periods of that game once they got got in front, where if they'd been a bit more ambitious and a bit more ruthless, they could have taken that game away from Leeds. I think they could have they could have won that. If it had gone 2-0, I think there was far more chance of it going 3-0 than there was of, of Leeds getting back into it. And they almost had for an hour. They had Leeds exactly where they wanted them. It wasn't that the crowd were being difficult with Bielsa and his players. I actually thought, again, they were being really, really patient. And it wasn't, it wasn't like outright revolt at all. It was just that thing that starts to happen where people can't avoid sighing about misplaced passes and, and moaning a little bit about the things that go wrong. But... Wolves basically allowed it to get to the stage where Ellen Road realised around about kind of 65 minutes that they were going to have to plug in and they were going to have to make something happen. And and you just started to feel the onslaught coming. There was a lot of time wasting from Wolves. I don't think there was any doubt about that. I don't think they played particularly well. I don't think they looked like a particularly good team. And I think, as everybody seemed to realise inside the ground, that's why it would have hurt and that's why it would have been a concern if Leeds had taken nothing from that because it, it did need to yield something, especially with this game at, at Norwich coming, you know, eight days later. But yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why there was annoyance with um, very, with what looked like a fair amount of play acting and, and everything else. It wasn't very impressive. I mean, we've dug into what their fans have been saying in response to this and they were all pretty much on the fan channels of a mind that it was fair enough and they invited an equaliser. There weren't too many complaints, actually. Well, our rules writer, um, Tim Spears, said just before the, the uh, we went into injury time, he, he tweeted to say, you know, there's been some great shithousing from Wolves in this game. And and if you're a Wolves fan, you can kind of see it from that perspective. But he also said that the downside of this is that it means we're getting six minutes of injury time. And, you know, it was the six minutes that did for them. They weren't able to to see it through. Gelhart was becoming too much of a handful for them and, and they were under too much pressure. I don't think there'd be many complaints about the result, really. I saw a bit of griping about the penalty, but I did think, in the current climate, I did think that was a penalty. I don't think that there's any question about that. And it was totally deserved. You know, by the end, it, it was deserved and it made a huge difference for everybody. And as I say, I can't ever remember coming out of a result like that a couple of months into the season with the, the atmosphere quite as it was. It felt more like April when every point counts as you're going for the playoffs or, or going for promotion. Let's have a chat then about the referee and by extension VAR and what happened to Rafinha because we've been picking apart over the last couple of days the referee and performance at Allen Road against Wolves. What did you make of it? Because I said on, on the one hand, I thought some of it was good. The ref was all right up to a point. But on the other hand, he... Did he fall for their play acting or did he add the time on? It's been hard to sort of pick it apart and get a, a definitive opinion on it. What do you think? He was mixed, I agree. Uh, I thought some of it was good. I thought some of it was was not good at all. I've kind of felt that all the way through the season that we're, we're yet to really see, unless there's, there's something that's skipping my mind, we're yet to really see referee and performance that's been hugely impressive. And VAR, I think I said a couple of weeks ago that we seem to get stuck on talking about VAR every week because there is always something with it that is pretty unsatisfactory. And it was hard to look at that tackle on Rafinha and to think that it was kind of demonstrably different to Strike's challenge on Harvey Elliott. The difference being that that Elliott broke his leg and and Rafinha seems to have got away with what sounds like a fairly minor ankle injury. Bielsa is pretty hopeful that that he'll play at Norwich um, at the weekend, but but he did have to come off. And I think the point about that challenge was that the studs were up and and Saez was so far away from the ball that it ended up hitting his arm behind him. And I don't think he was even booked for for that challenge. I mean, he could have gone actually for a um, for a foul on Rodrigo later in the game and, and there were things that were missed. I think the problem that, that is 
generated from VAR, and, and there are several of them. But it has just led to, to more and more scrutiny of, of individual decisions and, and also the inconsistency that you inevitably find because there are always going to be there are always going to be incidents in one game that are dealt with differently in another. But again, the strike dismissal is going to rankle with people because not many of us thought it was a red card, least of all Harvey Elliott. And to see that on, on Saturday, there were kind of similar aspects to it and VAR didn't seem interested. The referee didn't do a great deal about it. It looks like Rafinha's got away without a serious injury, which is obviously obviously important for Leeds. Um, but yeah, refereeing-wise, I, I didn't think it was anything impressive at all on, on Saturday. On the VAR stuff, did the club have either an ongoing dialogue or the right to any chat with with the, with the referees about this? Because you can look at a few decisions, that, like the Dan James penalty at Newcastle being a really clear one as well, where you think, well, how how clear and obvious does something have to be before it is, it is looked at? Do they, is that something that the club have a chance to do or...? Yeah, they, they do. Um, you'll, uh, you'll probably remember Kinnear writing a few times in the programme last season about the the dialogue that had been going on um, with the PGMOL, the, the referees body, the Premier League, the, the people who are overseeing it all, about individual decisions, about VAR's influence, about decisions that weren't given, decisions that were, the, the contentious nature of them. The problem is that if even if they come back to you and explain it to you, from their point of view, or if they come back to you and say, yeah, do you know what? We, we did make a mistake with that and, and it, it was the wrong call. It doesn't actually make any difference. I think it's kind of useful insight if there are things that you can learn about how referees are interpreting the game. So, for example, penalty decisions or handball decisions and so on, there are possibly ways in which players can be clever about what they do or how they try to defend and everything else. But if the PGMOL come back to, to Leeds and say, yeah, that, do you know what, that foul on Rafinha should have, should really have been a red card, which they never would unless um, the, the FA tried to, to cite him. But even that would have been difficult because the incident was quite clearly seen by by some of the officials. But even if they come back and say, yeah, do you know what, that, that was a bad challenge, it, it just doesn't doesn't change anything. So yes, you, you can ask for feedback, but what the, um, what the benefit of that is, I, I, I'm honestly not sure. Now, Jack Harrison's certainly not the only one who's been a little bit out of form this season but he is one that has been noticeable and the reason I pick him out in particular is because you mentioned in one of your Q&A's on The Athletic this week that he's been suffering with a little bit of a a rib problem this season is is that contributing to his poor form? Well it's probably not helping him it sounded to me from what I was told like it was a muscular issue um, around one of his ribs um, or his, his rib cage and I don't think it's a massive problem for him and clearly he's still able to play it might well be might well be affecting him to some degree, but he I think falls into quite a big category of players at the moment who just are not playing as well as they have previously. The the, the form isn't there, the, the kind of vibrancy isn't there, the the invention isn't either, and not much at the moment in in the way of creativity. Uh, I thought that was particularly apparent when he came off the bench um, against West Ham, certainly for the first time. I think that was the first game where I'd looked at him and thought he just doesn't. He doesn't look on it at all at the moment and it hasn't really picked up since then. But as I say, I kind of feel, and, and this has been one of the issues for Bielsa and, and for Leeds, I kind of feel like you could apply that comment to quite a few members of the squad. There are a few of them who are playing well um, and I think Rafinha stands out as the one who's, who's been really impressive. But some of you, your really big performers in recent seasons, Dallas, Cleek and so on, have, have not been there and have not been at, at the level that they, they can be at. And that is a problem. And I definitely think that has been a part of the reason behind the results. The tactics are 
are, are trying to be very similar. I think the approach from Bielsa is trying to be as it has been for the past three seasons. But he has players who are just not playing as they have previously. But what do you put that down to? What do you think's at the root of that? It's very difficult to put your finger on because everybody at Leeds will say that the physical stats coming out of their games and so on are acceptable, you know, are fine and there's no issue there. There's no notable downturn over pre-season. They were higher than they'd been in previous summers. I think when it comes to the the physical fitness of the players, and I'm not talking about injuries, but I mean the the core fitness, the club club and Bielsa feel that that's absolutely spot on and, and absolutely fine. But there does seem to be I don't know whether it's a mental thing or whether whether it's mental tiredness or, or something like that. The, the precision of the play and I guess the pace of it and the speed of it and the difficulty difficulty to defend against it, it just doesn't seem to be quite as it was previously. And in in many ways, Arsenal last night almost captured perfectly, I think, the, the season to date in that there were counterattacks in the first half that, that were really good and really quick and, and really fluid. But the final ball wasn't there, and and that definitely is a that definitely is a shortcoming for Leeds at the moment. But then there were periods of the game where it it, it all just kind of fell apart, and and where the impetus was lost, and suddenly you didn't feel as you had been in parts of the first half. You, you felt like you were looking at a Bielsa Leeds team. Suddenly you you didn't, and I think that feeds into the fact that we haven't really had a complete performance from Leeds this season. Certainly not anywhere near the best that we've had under Bielsa in, in his time as manager. Do you think there's anything lacking from a footballing point of view? Uh, you know, different types of, of play, different types of balls. Like we seem to be seeing fewer little interchanges out on the wings, you know, the, where they try and get the three on two overload by doing the passing triangles out on the wing. It seems to be less successful this season. I don't feel like the overlapping and underlapping is coming um, as regularly as it, as it did previously. And that that was always a massive strength under, under Bielsa. It, it always had to be a massive strength because Leeds do use the wide areas so much. I think that would it would probably help if you had a fit and healthy ailing um, in the team, and and he I think will have a chance of Norwich at the weekend. I, I don't know if he'll if he'll definitely make it back for that game, but I was I was having to think about him, and and you know after the Wolves game, just recalling the, the previous periods where Bielsa has either you know been in a, a bit of a corner or a bit of a sticky patch, and the one that always jumps out is the the defeated Forest and and the draw at Brentford, and ailing was. Whether people noticed it or not, in, in in the background, but also the forefront, he, he he scored goals in that period. He was a really he was a really big personality, really influential personality. People always say that in terms of the captaincy, Cooper is a very very good captain at the club, but he's not as vocal as Ailing. Ailing is is somebody who who does speak a lot, who does talk a lot, who, who tries to to put himself about. And I think he could his return could help both tactically because you know when he plays well on the right he's a real handful and he does get leads going down that side. But also you know just from a, a personal his kind of personal input as well that that might just help the dressing room. But I think if we're being fair, I don't think Filippo and Harrison have have married up in anything like the way that um, Alioski and, and Harrison did um, in periods of, of last season. I, I do think that that's still to develop on that side again. Injuries for football, which mean that, that he's in and out of the team. And it's kind of like multiple issues at the moment, isn't it? The form's not there, but a lot of players aren't there either because they're not fit and, and they're not they're not able to play. And, and there's no doubt at all that it's it's making Leeds vulnerable. Just on Cooper, um, what do you make of the, the header last night? Was he just a little bit cold? Uh, and, and what of Melier's footwork that allowed the first Arsenal one to, to get over the line? Well, to deal with Melier first, we ran a piece probably about two weeks ago now with... Um, a, goalkeeper who works for us as a goalkeeping expert, Matt Petrowski, played in the States and, and also 
um, in, in Scandinavia professionally. And one of the sections in that was talking about Melier's footwork and specifically the goals last season in the Premier League where Melier seemed to get caught behind his line. There was one down at Crystal Palace, there was one against West Ham. And Matt was trying to explain how that kind of comes down to your footwork and, and also your own sort of ability to hold your nerve and, and to do the right things when you're, you're under pressure. And it did feel again last night as if he'd stray behind the line and, and into a position where that was able to, to cross you know, cross over, even though it was effectively coming straight at him. I mean, in no way was the defending in front of him helpful and your know, leads were, were badly exposed in, in that moment. With Cooper, it's a it's a bad mistake. It's it's a bad error. It was a really cheap goal. And Ketia, bless his socks, made the most amazing attempt to miss that from a, <laughs> a, a foot out. I mean, I, I genuinely thought that that was going wide of the post. from a, And I, I suspect for a moment he must have done too because he completely mishit it and it just kind of nestled in in the, the far side netting. But it was an absolute gimme of a, of a goal. And it I, I do feel a little for Cooper because I, it's... I think it was something like Tyler Roberts. There's a definite issue there. There's no question at all that it's not working with Roberts. It's a long time since any of us would have said that he made, or it feels like a long time since he made a, a meaningful impact. And and I could see Bielsa last night, unless I was reading this wrong, it seemed as if he was getting frustrated with some of um, Roberts' hold-up play. Um, the decision I thought to bring Gelhart on made perfect sense and, and could possibly have, have come a little bit earlier. With Cooper, I think you do get good games out of Cooper. I thought he played well against Wolves um, on Saturday. Bielsa thought he played well when, and specifically singled him out afterwards, which is which is quite rare for Bielsa. He, he doesn't often do that. But I almost feel with Cooper that he gets spoken about when things go wrong and not so much when when things when things are better. Uh, but at the same time, I accept that he does have pressure on him from a very very good prospect in in Pascal Stroik, and and nobody's position is sacred. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now on the Phil Hay Show, we are going to talk Joe Gelhart, one of the breakout stars of Leeds United's season so far. Uh, Joseph Paul Gelhart, born the 4th of May 2002. That's between a 1-0 win at Derby and a 1-0 win at home versus Middlesbrough. Uh, Leeds finished fifth that season, Phil. David O'Leary sacked after the season had ended, but he's now in our first team. Talk to us about Joe Gelhart then. What do you think? You only really use somebody's full first name and middle name if you think they're going to be a sensation in the way that they used to do with Maradona. Actually, you you um you WhatsApp me after the game and said his little runs there reminded me of Maradona '86, and and I know you were only joking and, and being lighthearted, but um it was a great little snapshot of what he does and and what he what he can do, and a pretty clear explanation I think of why a lot of people have been have been banging the drum 
for him to to get a go. I was saying after the Southampton game that I felt sorry for him down at St Mary's because he, he came off the bench, he was in theory getting this chance, but he was dropping into a team who were not playing well and were not likely to give him much much in the way of good ball up front. And actually, it was it was pretty similar at Arsenal last night as well. It was one of those circumstances where the game had turned against Leeds. And, and you know, there, there were far too many long balls towards him and, and far too many situations where you were asking him to do something out of out of very little. But I, certainly in the, the closing sort of 20 minutes, 15 minutes against Wolves, he seemed to be making all the right decisions at, at the right times. He, he'd, he'd gone up front ahead of Rodrigo and... Rodrigo actually was was very good at, at linking up with him. The, the interplay was 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 really clever. But Gilhar's movement to to create that first shot, which looked to everybody, I think, like it was going to smash into the roof of the net, it was a, a top save from from Jose Sa. That and, and the little dinking runs in in the box reminded me of of what Mo Salah has been doing this season. You know, he was trying to Mo Salah Will's defence, and and they were worried about sticking the foot out. They were worried about bringing him bringing him down. And I think more than anything, with like two minutes of injury time to go, to have the vision from that far outside the box, he was probably 30 yards from goal when he picked the ball up, to have the vision to see that he was going to be able to beat players and have a go at getting himself into the, into the box and again causing some panic there, it spoke to me of a really mature head on you know on, on pretty young shoulders. And there have been a lot of Rooney comparisons with Gilhart, you know, all the way back to, to when he was young and and they're kind of premature, but I have to say there's a lot about him that does remind you of Rooney, which is not to claim that he's necessarily going to end up being that good. But between his, his body shape, his, his movement, his low centre of gravity and, and the way he kind of, the way he knows where the goal is, I, I think the, the similarities are not bad. And it starts obviously with birth in Liverpool. That's where the, the comparison begins. And uh, he's joined us uh, from Wigan due to their administration. Sold to us by Joel Krasner, wasn't he? Yeah, it was the administrators who set his... Um, City's valuation, which I was told at the time was around about seven hundred thousand pounds, but but somewhere initial fee um, in the ballpark of of a million quid, which everybody felt was a pittance really for for somebody as good as that. Wigan had a lot of very good youngsters over there, but they certainly felt like he was one of the best of them. But because Wigan were in administration and Leeds can relate to this, they needed money, and ultimately cash was cash. Um, they were getting offered some for Gelhard. He, he I don't think Gilhard particularly wanted to go because he was happy at Wigan, but he realised that players were leaving in droves, good players were going in droves, and that for his own development, it was really important that that he moved on. And, and there was a lot about the offer from Leeds that, that appealed to him. But he's got one of these great backstories that you often find with, with very talented kids about you know, what he used to do as a footballer at, at, at youth level. You know, we've spoken to people at, at Wigan and, and people who, who know him, and they talked about taking him on trial from Marine, who he played for over on Merseyside. And, you know, during that trial, I think it ran for about six to eight weeks, something like that. And he sort of casually scored a hat-trick against Liverpool, at which point they were suddenly thinking, right, never mind the trial. You know, we really, really need to get this this person, uh, this, this kid signed down. And then they, they talked as well about a game against Huddersfield. Um, and they said, yeah, we, we scored 10 against Huddersfield and, and he scored all of them. And you're thinking... Sorry, like ten goals in one game. Well, yeah, you know, and and he just used to just used to do that all the time. He's just absolutely prolific. And the thing that really stood out with him, apart from his obvious ability and everything else, was that he he played up 
um, you know, played at higher levels than, than his actual age. And every time he did, he scored goals. So every time he went through the England youth ranks, you know, on the 16s, on the 17s, under 18s, he would score, no problem. Every time Wigan pushed him, you know, in the under 16s at, at 13, he would score goals. You know, at, at 16, he was getting his chance with the first team at Wigan. He had all the hallmarks of a, of a real prodigy. And I think of the 23s um, that are at Leeds at the moment, I'd maybe suggest that Charlie Creswell is the one who's, who looks most ready for first-team football. And having seen him against West Ham, perhaps most ready for, for 90-minute appearances in the Premier League. But I think we've you know we've said many times, Gilhart is the one. Gilhart is the one that so much is expected of him. And I was chatting to somebody who said, when he left Wigan, I would have absolutely put my mortgage on him being worth 10 times as much um, in a year's time. And their words were it was the most obvious thing in football. Given his trajectory, as you said, going up through the England youth levels, why did we manage to get him for such a small amount? I know obviously Wigan were in trouble, but you'd you'd think there'd be a dozen teams who were willing to pay a million pounds for someone of that calibre. There were plenty of other clubs looking at him. Leicester City were, were really active um, at the, the point where the deal with Leeds was was getting done. And other clubs took a good look at it. He'd gone to look at Everton as a 13-year-old. He'd, he'd been linked pretty heavily with Manchester City and, and I think he'd had a chance to go there when he was about 15. But there were clubs who weren't so sure about him because of his body shape. If you look at him, he doesn't have a kind of traditional footballer's build. He is really stocky. Um, the, he is quite top-heavy in that sense. But for what it's worth, I actually think that's quite an asset for him. It seems to help him. He looks much stronger than a player of his height and his age should be. And he's got that great low centre of gravity that, that helps him to move quickly and to, to change direction. But it was quite interesting because when, when he came to Leeds, his body fat and, and his weight and everything else was above, you know, his fitness levels were, uh, were not at, at the standard that Bielsa would have wanted. And part of the reason for that was that at Wigan, he'd, he'd left the under-23s behind. He'd moved into the first-team squad and was kind of considered a first-team player. But he wasn't playing a great deal. And because of that, there were periods where he'd almost amass more minutes for England's under-17s than he would do for, for his club. And it meant that there was going to be some some catch-up. So, you know, when he arrived at Leeds and he joined and he, and he started training, it was kind of seen straight away that it was going to be a steep climb for him and, and he has was going to have to, to get to grips with all this. But somebody was telling me that within about two weeks, his weight was down, his body fat was down, his fitness was improving and, and he was impressing Bielsa with his application. And I think one of the things that you really have to remember about Bielsa is that he, he loves a player with talent and he loves a player with skill, but he's he's incredibly big on application and attitude and and attention to detail when it comes to fitness and nutrition and, and everything else. It holds a huge amount of currency with him. And very, very quickly, Gilhard picked those, uh, ticked those boxes um, at Leeds. And, you know, aside from realising that, that he was quite clearly a, a very, very gifted prospect, they could see what everybody who knows Gilhart says, which is that he has a, a very, very stable head. Well, we heard from him for the first time, really, in the wake of the Wolves' performance. And I was struck by two things. One was that he touched on the physical aspect and he commented that he'd struggled a little bit with the physical demands early doors, which I don't think he's alone in. The other thing was just how self-assured he was for, for a 19-year-old kid. It's a ridiculous amount of confidence that he's got. Everybody says that. I mean, they, they know him best at Wigan and, and they say that you always had the right mix of self-confidence which was was there and, and which was needed but also no real arrogance and people who've known him for years say there hasn't been a lot of change in him at all and um, there wasn't a lot of change when he went from marine to 
to Wigan. I think it said quite a lot about him that he was, and his family as well, that he was he was very happy at Wigan and made the effort to stay there rather than taking other jumps, which would have been quite easy to, to be seduced by, you know, Manchester City or, or Everton or whatever else. And and that even when when Leeds were knocking on the door and, and getting into position to sign him, you know, he did want to join the club and, and he was happy with their offer. But I think there was a little bit of reluctance about going from Wigan because it, it had been had been good for him. But they liked the fact with Leeds that when it came to, to meeting Otter and, and to, you know, seeing the presentation that Leeds had pulled together about him and finding out what, what the plans were. Leeds didn't waste any time sort of falling over his goals or his best bets, you know, for the under-23s or, or Wigan's first team because they kind of spoke for themselves. They, they talked a lot about where he needed to improve, how they were going to improve him, how they were going to change him as a player, how he was going to fit in, and also about the kind of time frame ahead of him. So there wasn't really much expectation that he would play for the first team last season and I don't think on Gelhart's side or on the club side anybody wanted to rush that I think they all saw that he needed a period of acclimatisation but it was the idea that beyond that kind of 12 month starting period that this season it would be possible for Bielsa to drip feed him in and to that extent I, I think his chances could potentially have come a little bit quicker than they, they have this season because he has been I mean he's just been scoring for fun um, with the with the 23s but you would almost say that his development at the moment is is pretty much on track in comparison to what Leeds were expecting when he first joined. Do you get the sense that it will be a drip feeding into the first team across this season then or do you think maybe he may be accelerated further forward then as this season progresses given that the start that he's made? Well if he plays like he did on Saturday, I think the argument for keeping him out becomes more and more difficult to make. And, and I think you can marry that with the debate about the impact that we're getting from Tyler Roberts at the moment, which I think is, is there for, for discussion. I mean, I, I've I've kind of been careful all the way through this season not to focus the, the, the entirety of the problem with Leeds teams on Roberts, you know, not to frame it solely around him because there is much more to it. And if we're picking players who are out of form or haven't contributed a, a great deal this season, he he wouldn't be the only one or certainly who haven't contributed what they, they have done in, in previous seasons. But again, last night, the, the impact wasn't there. And I sort of wonder from a psychological point of view how it would, will be affecting Roberts beyond his own form, you know, knowing that he is he is the kind of focus of this attention now. And in the same way as people were with Helder Costa, people are, are asking questions about why it is that Roberts is in the team when, or, or is, is, is getting as much of a go as he is when, when it isn't happening for him. And I think the intensity of those discussions increases when you have somebody like Gelhart who comes off the bench and makes the difference that he did on, on Saturday. I mean, I would go as far as to say against Wolves that without him on the pitch, I don't think Leeds get anything from that game on Saturday. I think they'd have had pressure towards the end. I think they definitely would. But it didn't look really like anybody else was going to do what, what he did, you know, right, right at the death. How good is Joe Gelhart, in your opinion? To look at him in plain sight, he looks incredibly talented, incredibly gifted. It all seems to be very natural. He, he seems to understand where to position himself when the ball's coming to him. He seems to know how to beat defenders. Um, and, he, and he is so comfortable with the ball at his feet. And I think not just with the ball at his feet, but when he's moving at pace, you know, it almost sticks to him. And, and that's, quite a, that's quite a rarity. You have to be careful of over overhyping players because he is only he is only nineteen. He hasn't played much at this level yet. But I tend to go by what people around him say. And within Leeds, they're massively impressed by him. At Wigan, they were hugely impressed by him. There were enough clubs interested in him when Wigan put him up for sale to know that they think that you know across the board really 
clubs see him as Premier League potential, without a doubt. I think, looking at him, he has the potential to be a very, very outstanding Premier League player if he progresses in the way he does. And, and he has the attitude, definitely, to, to go with the with the natural talent. It, it'll depend, to use a Bielsa phrase, it will depend on his evolution to a, to a big degree. Um, but I do feel like he is the he's the kind of shining light from the academy in, in what is a very good under-23 squad. Given he's looking at displacing someone in a fairly settled Leeds team, who is he most likely to get out of the team, do you think, if he's going to progress to be a, this great Premier League player? Well, he's he's played as a ten plenty for the the twenty threes. Bielsa has used him certainly in the the last um, last few games has used him more as a nine up front. Um, he he was he was in that position against Wolves. Um, again, he he took the position up top against Arsenal. It was a more difficult game against Arsenal. I think the the biggest threat would be to Roberts at the moment. I mean, they they both seem to fall into that kind of creative zone um, that, that Bielsa likes behind the number nine and, and realistically the number nine when everybody's fully fit is still going to be Patrick Bamford but again you've probably seen with Gilhart that you've you've got a fair amount of flexibility um, in his, in where you can play him he, he looked on on Saturday like he was a player who will score goals if you you give him chances as I say that that save from Sa was stop what I thought looked like a, a, a definite goal but beyond that you had the the little dribbling run later in the game which was more kind of more akin to a number 10 um, than a nine so he seems to, to be quite happy in either position and I think again as, as he gets better it will become harder and harder to keep him out of the team and what do you think is his limit do we have a sense of that even at this stage it's really hard to say. I'm inclined with him, and I don't think I'd say this about every under-23. I'm, I'm inclined, inclined with him to think that he can go an awful long way. I don't think many people who are working with him or around him would, would particularly set limits on on where they think he can he can get to. But anybody who coaches academy players and, and players coming through will, will tell you that there's so many variables in, in what happens season to season and, and in and what happens to, to individual footballers. So that would that would be difficult to call. And I think, as I say, at the moment, it's probably not ideal to be hyping too much on him. The problem is that when you do that against Wolves on, on your Premier League debut, people are going to pay attention. And you've got a piece on The Athletic that's been published now about Joe Gelhart. Give us one of the big takeaways or the big takeaway that you've got from from writing that piece and researching him? As I say, the bit that jumped out to me was the person saying that when he was sold by Wigan for roughly a million pounds, he was 100% confident that within a year's time, you, people would be looking at Gelhart and thinking of him more as a £10 million pound player. And that might be going a little bit too far given that given how few minutes he's, he's had. But you know, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know if if Leeds had their arm twisted and were forced to sell him tomorrow. I'd be fascinated to know what they would ask for him because it would be a hell of a lot more than a million pounds. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On to Norwich at the weekend then, the Sunday televised game. What will our eyes be provided with, Phil? A spectacle, let's hope, and a victory. Norwich. Did you see the stat this week about Norwich? Um, Something about the pedestrianisation of the town centre, no? No, sadly not. Although if you look around, you'll you'll find something about that too. But um, Mo Salah has a better XG calculation this season than Norwich, which is not a surprise actually, but is um, is fairly damning. I mean, they are comprehensively at the bottom of the league. Two points from nine games, 23 goals conceded, two goals scored, minus 21 goal difference. It's pretty grim, really. And I listen to a lot of what's said down there and, and I understand a lot of it, you know, the fact that they don't have by any means the biggest budget in the division, that they are a club who are who are prone to yo-yoing and, and kind of naturally prone to yo-yoing and, and they want to put a lot of money into the academy and they want to rely on that in, in years going forward. But I don't think you can come into the Premier League and, and be this bad. I think you would expect the team at the very least to compete more considerably than, than they have so far. And I don't know, there does seem to be a bit of chirping now about Daniel Farke. I know he's he's been he's been very solid there in, in terms of the you know the, the backing from Norwich's board. His his position has never ever felt under threat. But that was a real hiding from Chelsea at the weekend. They, they were all over the place and red card for for Ben Gibson as well, who's going to miss this game this weekend. And, and as I said earlier in the podcast, this is quite simply a game Leeds have to win in. And it'll be a game, you know, barring something very weird going on, it'll be a game without much in the way of excuses if they don't. What, what actually happens to Norwich? Because you've seen them stroll out of the Championship fairly easily and then get relegated without any fight whatsoever once and it looks to be happening again. How would, how does it go so badly wrong in between? You, most teams carry at least a little bit of momentum, don't they, into the into the new league? But it seems to completely evade Norwich. Yeah, and and twice running now, which I think when it comes to Farkas' position is is got to be a concern. And, and it's not as if they didn't spend any money over the summer. They in, in the end, um, I was talking to Michael Bailey, our, our Norwich writer, and, and Michael was saying, you know, it was it was about a fifty million pound spend down there, and they did sell when dear, you know, the, there was money coming in. From elsewhere, and, and actually, they've they've just released their accounts, and it's been the Buendia sale that's allowed them to um, to post the profit for the season in the championship. Otherwise, they'd have made a pretty hefty operating loss of of twenty five million pounds. And as I was reading that, I was kind of thinking to myself, that straight away reminds you of why if you can avoid yo yoing, then then you would. And if you're a club in in Leeds position who have obviously thrown a, a fair amount of money at it all since coming up, you, you do not want to countenance um, relegation again. Which which is why this is such a big game this weekend. It's a, a prime opportunity to to get three points on the board. But yeah, the, the 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 momentum they have in the championship, and and let's be honest, in the end, you know they were the strongest side in the season when when they and Leeds were going um, for automatic promotion. You know they they stretched clear in the end, did Norwich, and and they deserve to win the title. But they came into the Premier League and, and they were well out of their depth. And, and again, they seem to be out of their depth this season. And I don't know. I, I don't know whether part of it is down to the fact that they are a club who can see 
you know, a, a strategy of sorts when it comes to yo-yoing. You know, a, a club who are maybe a, a bit more ready to accept relegation than, than quite a few of others. I don't know if that permeates through the squad. I don't know if it permeates, you know, through the, the general attitude of, of what they should be aiming for and what they should be trying to do. I just kind of feel that when you look at the bottom end of the division, you, you see a lot of, well, a lot, you see a good clutch of clubs there that if you play well at all, you should be able to compete with when it comes to your finishing position in the league. And, and I think, you know, two points from nine with a, a goal difference of minus 21 is hard to excuse and, and pretty hard to justify. Is there any merit in being a bit of a yo-yo club? I do wonder, maybe going up and down a few times, get yourself a... Um, Trying to know. talk yourself into it. No, I'm just talking about like financial stability, really. Um, no, this is the last thing I want in the world for Leeds, but I meant from the Norwich perspective of um, just getting your, your finances in order because we know the championship is a complete and utter money pit. So from their perspective, does it make sense? Go up, pocket the money, and then gradually rebuild over a number of years, and then hopefully in a future promotion, if they continue to come back up and, and all that, um, they stabilise in the Premier League. Well, I may or may not write about this later in the week, um, and depending on what goes on at, at Carroll Road. But as I was saying, the, the, the figure that jumped out from their accounts wasn't so much the, the £50 million profit that they made overall, because that was that was helped by player sales like Buendia, for example. The figure that jumped out was the £25 million operating loss, which tells you that as soon as you get back into that division, your income drops massively, your commercial revenue drops massively, and you are at risk of, of building up big debts. And, and you know, those debts are either covered by your owner or they, they become a problem. And you can almost work with that if you do get promoted again. You know, in, in Burnley's case, it happened to them. They went down, they, they, they came back up. Norwich have done exactly the same up under Farke, um in 2019, relegated last season and, and then, uh, sorry, relegated the, the season after and then promoted again last season. So you do take that operating loss and then you move back into the world of Premier League income and realistically you should be able to manage that. The big risk, I think, with the, the concept of yo-yoing is that you end up yo-yoing in, in only one direction, which is down. And then you then you you get stuck in the championship as as clubs do. Take Derby as a, a good example of a side who spent a lot of money but couldn't get out of the league and and ultimately hit the buffers. I, I think that is the the big risk. And I see absolutely no upside for Leeds in in yo-yoing at all. I think given what they're talking about doing with the you know the stadium and given you know I, the, there isn't you know there have been arguments about how much has been spent on the squad, but it was. You know, all in kind of 100 million in the last um, summer window, 50 million in, in this window, not all up front, but you know, that was the, the kind of overall financial commitment. And also a wage bill, which is going up and up and up and is wildly above, you know, the level that, that it would have been when Radrazani first bought out Chileno and, and also well above the level it would have been um, in the last season in the championship. You need Premier League money to, to finance those sort of projects and, and that kind of outgoing monthly and, and annually. 100% leads need to stay up and, and they know it. I should just say, just for clarity, I was talking about yo-yo yeah, from a Norwich yeah, perspective. You're, you're at risk of getting beaten to death in the street for that, aren't you? No, I, I, in no way, shape or form, I'm advocating for us yo-yoing. I think <laughs> it's the worst idea in the world ever. I need to go on record and say that. But when you stack these two teams up against each other on Sunday, uh, what do you see? Norwich tend to sway between 4-3-3 and 3-5-2 and it has been 3-5-2 more recently um, which would suggest that Leeds are going to have to go three at the back 
What jumps out to me is that neither side are looking particularly dangerous up front at the moment. I mean, Norwich especially, two goals from, from their game so far. And, you know, the, the last game they had Pukki and they had Josh Sargent up front. And, you know, Pukki has always been a source of goals for them and, and was going to have to be again this season. But that that hasn't kicked in for him yet. But equally, to look at Leeds, that there is a definite issue up front at the moment with final ball, with creativity, with the ability to create chances, which was something they were always so good at under Bielsa. You know, it wasn't, the finishing always used to drive him nuts. You know, that was always the the, the thing that was never quite there, but they were, they were so good at, at creating shots on goal. It's quite interesting, really. Norwich at the moment, 21 shots on target so far from nine games, which is a very low number. Leeds have got 35, which is higher and is far more in kind of middle ground um, with the Premier League without being close to your, your Liverpools and Manchester Cities and so on. But I did notice that the, the shots on target face this season, Norwich top of the top of the list with 54, but who's in second with 52? I can guess. Yes. So, you know, defensively, Leeds are letting quite a lot come at them. And that's not a new phenomenon. You know, we, we did see that last season as well. But when it's not being balanced by really quality and killer attacking play, that is when you tend to have a problem. And, and that, you know, again, that is probably one of the things that does explain why we're nine games in and they have the number of points that they do. Leeds should win this. I think it's it's absolutely fair on every piece of evidence we can see. Leeds should win this. Le- will Leeds win this though, Phil? I think they should and I do think they will. I think they will. I think they're good enough to win it. I think they are better than Norwich. I think the players themselves will know how much they need to win this. Even Bielsa will realise deep down how much he, he needs to win this. I mean, I'm not saying that there would necessarily be any consequences of failure to win it. Um, certainly not getting any vibes like that at all from the club. But there will be big questions. You know, if you, if you lose at Carroll Road to a side of two points from, from nine and, and cannot win a game and, and cannot score goals, then you really are into the into the ballpark of, of having to provide some very detailed explanation about what is going wrong because you will be 10 games in and, and you will have a tally of points that does equate you know, over 38 matches to, to a relegation fight. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a key fixture this, but I do think I do think it will be Leeds' game. I think Leeds will win it. Have you explicitly asked the question of the club then about Bielsa's position? Because I wouldn't say there's any you know pressure from the fan base whatsoever, but there are questions no. being asked. I think it's it's honest. It's fair to say that, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I've certainly not asked about his position because I don't think that would be particularly fair to to him at all. Um, and and I, I I think given his track record and, and given what's gone on in the, in the three years, he deserves a good amount of backing at the first point, really, where it's it's got seriously difficult for him or, or seriously tough, you know. And and I still don't think that you would look at it and say that it's it's out of control. They are out with the bottom three, not by not by much. Um, but but the fact remains that that they still are. It's it's not especially especially good at the moment. They're not playing well. But I think the feeling is, particularly with players coming back, you know, big players returning to the team, Bamford especially, Rafinha hopefully play um on on Sunday. With we're not seeing Bielsa until Friday morning, but I think Bamford will be very much touch and go. I'm not sure if he if he will be ready for that. He might have a chance. But Ailing as well, I was mentioning him earlier, somebody who who could make make a difference. I think what you try to pick up is the general vibes about how the club are feeling about the performances and, and how they're feeling about the way it is going. And, and as I say, it seems to me that everybody is erring on the side of feeling that this can turn around and, and probably will turn around with um, you know with, with, the, with the squad much closer to full strength. But it has to be said that as you know, bad runs go on, these, the questions tend to become a bit more pointed. Do you think the club were prepared for a season to start like this? 
No, definitely not. No, I, I don't think any of them anticipated it being like this. And I don't even just mean in the results. I don't think they really anticipated so many players being, you know, at, at that kind of level below where they have been when they've they've all been playing so well. I mean, to to pick out Dallas as an example, player of the year last season and deservedly so. I I, I thought it was it was him all the way by the end of the season. But hasn't really had a 90-minute performance. I mean, neither of Leeds, it, it should be said, but, you know, it's just not looked like your standard Stuart Dallas and Stuart Dallas as we've come to see him now under Bielsa. And and again, I don't particularly want to single him out because I think there are plenty of other players that you could say the same about it. I mean, it feels to me a long, long time since we saw a peak Matthias Cleek. It really does. And and as I said about the Arsenal game, I, I felt like that was the, the wrong substitution and, and in many ways made Leeds worse in the second half. But no, th- this has been tough and it has been difficult and there will be frustration about it because you don't want to be in a position where you, you're getting into double fi- figures of games and struggling to get into double figures of points. Yeah, I, I still feel like everything is is okay at the moment, but it's, you know, that same old story, poor form can't go on forever. What do Leeds need to do to win this, Phil? Would it be too simplistic to say they need to play better? I mean, it's everybody I speak to is kind of a little bit baffled about this, and I must be repeating myself here. But I think you can see you can see some of what's going wrong, um, and you can see that players aren't playing well, or some players aren't playing particularly well. But you can't really nail down the reasons why, and you can't quite comprehend that that so many players would be below the kind of standard that that they were at consistently under Bielsa. I think that's what it comes down to now. They've, they've got the tactics and they're going to play in the same way regardless. You know, Bielsa is not for bending on that. And, and he, he made it quite clear in that press conference last week, which I thought was very good and, and I thought struck the right tone about how he was feeling and, and what he was seeing. He did make the point that he wasn't going to concede ground when it came to changing the style, changing the tactics, you know, using players that he didn't feel he should use. He, he was going to stick to that plan. And I, I know for a fact that in training, it is exactly as it's always been. You know, it is motherball and it is tough and it is, you know, players getting pushed. And there are little periods where he softens slightly, but generally it, it is, you know, it is as it's it's always been. And it just needs to come together, doesn't it? It needs to, it needs to click. They need to do what they've done in patches over 90 minutes. And, and they definitely can, and they've done it enough, you know, on enough enough occasions previously to be able to do it again. But it does seem to me to be that simple. They they need to play well. And if Leeds do win on Sunday, which we hope, which I think we expect to a certain degree, what does that mean? Is it just three points on the board or does it go some way to answering the bigger questions? Well, it takes you again a little bit further away from the side who are at the bottom of the table. If the teams below you don't, don't make hay at the weekend either, then, you know, again, you just put a little bit of breathing space between yourselves and, and the sides down there, which helps. It helps psychologically. I think it sets Leeds up better for what does look like a pretty difficult run of games coming up before Christmas. There are some, there's certainly some winnable matches in there, but there are, there's a particularly tough run when they get round to your Manchester cities and, and others, you know, that is, that is going to ask an awful lot of them. And, you know, it is my feeling this season that the top four are going to be more difficult to take points from, but, more than anything, I think it proves the ability to go to an away ground for a fixture you know deep down you should be winning and to show that you can win it. I think I think psychologically that would be the big thing for them. In terms of the Premier League, then we've been here for a year and a bit now and you think that, that the top four are maybe stretching away that little bit more now we're, we're post-pandemic in the sense that the crowds are back in the grounds and so which, on. Uh, which top four are we talking about, to be clear? <laughs> 
Well, this yeah, I, I should probably say we're sort of narrowing down to um, to kind of top three at the moment. Although you you can't deny that that Leeds were were properly put to the sword at Old Trafford on the first day of the season, and you know without going over old ground, I think if you put a different coach in at Old Trafford, then that squad becomes very hard to you know to to match up. Give to, him time, um, Phil. Give him time. To take points from. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't get the sense that anybody over here is is rushing for for that to happen. I mean, you you'll have seen Liverpool. At Old Trafford last weekend, you'll have seen Chelsea against Norwich. You'll have watched enough of Manchester City to see that all three teams just look supremely confident at the moment. The best players seem to be coming back into form. Certainly, Chelsea and Manchester City have, have spent money. Um, Chelsea, in particular, where they needed to up front with with Lukaku, they are on a, a completely different level, and you have to be realistic about the points you're going to take from them. And that is a reason why, you know, in games like Wolves at home, you need to be getting getting something from it. And as I said, uh, I, my feeling towards the end of the, that game was that because of what had been invested in it emotionally over those 90 minutes, something had to come out of the of the other end of it. And I still feel like that could be a big moment in the season. I do, despite what happened at Arsenal. Well, to finish the question I was setting up to ask there before we uh, we got into like the top clubs, it's not really then we need to worry about, is it? As you were saying there, it's, it's, it's the bottom half. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on what you made of the lower reaches of the Premier League and it's not very good is it there's a lot of not very good football teams down there that's probably fair to say and I think if we're being brutally honest on the basis of these nine games you'd include Leeds in that they haven't they haven't been impressive um, in that period and actually dropping further down as well when I take the time and I don't do this much but when I take the time to pick through the championship that is not a stellar league either you know you've lost, lost a lot of big names from that because a lot of big names have, have come up and it's, it's that kind of fixture list where if you're a neutral and trying to pick a, a game out to go to, there are quite a few weekends where you, there's so much of a muchness and you wouldn't be too sure where to go. This, I suppose, is the point I was trying to make about Norwich, you know, sitting on as, as few points and as few goals as they have so far. It shouldn't be difficult to be more competitive at the, the bottom end of the league. And I think Leeds will feel that as well. Leeds will feel looking at the, the sides who are around about them and how it's how it's going for them, that they should be in a better position and that and that they should be should be able to mix it. I think you're right. At the bottom end it's um it, it's pretty wide open. And with that in mind and Norwich on the mind, you are on a hot streak of prediction form, Michael, from last week. You predicted a draw against Wolves. If did you, I? You did, yeah. I remember. <laughs> so successful that you didn't even remember. Yeah, he did. Um, I don't want to gloat. Yeah. <laughs> So what what do you think then? We're all we're all leaning towards a Leeds win here on uh, on Sunday. We've already predicted wins over on our podcast. Let's get your take on it, Phil. Is it going to be a win? I almost feel like if Leeds scored early at Carroll Road, this could be one of those that develops into you know a, a kind of three niller that does everybody the world a good. It could end up being tighter than that because I think it will be a bit anxious. I think it will be a bit nervous. I think there will be that underlying sense of quite a lot riding on this game. Not necessarily in the in the big picture, but on this weekend, you know, every everybody going there is looking for a win. I think the club will know that the the reaction to a bad result at Carroll Road is is not going to be pretty. Um and, and not nor should it be really. I think they'll I think they'll have enough. I think they'll get this done. I think I feel a lot better if come one o'clock on Sunday we see Rafinha's name on the team sheet as well. I think he's a big He's a massive player in these games. He seems to be the one player this year who was really unlocking things for us. Definitely. And and given you know how poor Norwich are, there's, there's every chance of him doing serious damage to them. Fingers crossed, Phil. Fingers crossed. Let's hope so. Well, enjoy the rest of your of your trip and, and Harry Potter world tomorrow. And let's hope for a wizard performance, etc. from Leeds at Carrow Road at the weekend. 
yes, that'll be part two next week. My experience of, of Harry Potter world. And are you going to are you going to be going down to uh, to Carrow Road? Oh, I'll be there. Yes, I'll be there. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Good stuff. Well, uh, enjoy that, and we'll catch up on the story of uh, of Carrow Road next week on the Phil Hay Show at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter. If you want to say hi, sign up for the Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll be back next week. We'll see you then. Bye bye. The Phil Hay Show.